Well, we're going to be finishing uh, 2 Samuel this evening. And I must say that I'm going to miss this book very much. Again, one of my favorite uh, portions of Scripture. And tonight we're going to take communion together as well. If you're open up to 2 Samuel 24, let's read the whole entire thing and then we're going to go back and just take a look at it. I think it's important that we get the context of this before we start tearing it apart. <laughs> Again, uh, these last four chapters are really like uh, appendixes of David's history, David's reign, and this one we believe is very close to the end of David's reign. Certainly before, and, and, and we'll talk more about this later, uh, and why we believe that. Because we know that sometimes these last few chapters haven't been exactly in chronological order. And um, this one is really near the end, we believe, and we'll talk about that as we get there. But let's look at uh, chapter 24, verse 1. It says, again, underline that word again. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, meaning David, said to his commander, Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, he says, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army, and therefore Joab and the captains of the army went from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and encamped in Aurora on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, and toward Gezer, Jazer. And then they came to Gilead and to the land of Taftim Hadshai. And they came to Dan Jaan and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went out by south, uh, to south Judah as far as Beersheba. And so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Underline that. <laughs> nine months and 20 days. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. And so Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to, your, to you in your land, or shall you flee three months before your enemies while you, they pursue you, or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in a great distress. 
Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. And then from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And so David did according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked, and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And so Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. And then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you. To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And I love this. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. There's so much here about worship. It's amazing. Now Arona said to David, Let my Lord the king take and offer uh, up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. And all these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. And then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for, actually we're going to find out in First Chronicles, he says, for the full price. I'm going to pay the full price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from the people, from the people. I would encourage you when you get an opportunity to read over uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's the parallel account to this portion of scripture. And you'll find that there are some details in 1 Chronicles 21 that you're not going to see here. Some uh, corruption in the text. We're going to look at that tonight. And so let's get right into, so I, again, just as you read this chapter, uh, 2 Samuel 24, tonight or sometime, read both of these passages, uh, chapter 24 and then 1 Chronicles 21, and see if you can notice the discrepancies. And, and not, not the discrepancies, but there's sometimes there's just differences. And uh, just like the gospel accounts, what you can do is you can take these things often and you can fit them in together. What, just because it's not mentioned, uh, a certain detail might not be mentioned here in chapter 24, but it is mentioned in, 20, in 1 Chronicles 21, doesn't mean that the Word of God can't be depended upon. It's just that the chronicler uh, decided to have that, that incident or that fact put into the text to bring clarity. And, um, and so let's look at chapter uh, uh, chapter 24 again, beginning in verse 1 again. Notice what it says in, in 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And notice, and he moved 
against Israel. Underline the word he, because you're going to need to look at this. <laughs> and he moved David against them to say, go and number Israel and Judah. Now, turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. There's something here that I think is important in our understanding of who the Lord is. And again, notice in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it's pretty much verbatim except for a few little differences. But notice what the chronicler gives here in chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles. It says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So what is it? Is it God or is it Satan? Well, if we know a few things about the Lord, it's easy to understand what has happened here. Again, um, this makes it sound like God was the one who moved David to number the children of Israel, but yet in Chronicles it tells us that it was Satan who did it. Now the thing we have to understand is you can't throw out what you, what you already know about God. Don't throw that out based on what you do know about God. That's really important to do because if you had an understanding of God based on this, you might think that God was capricious or that God, um, you know, he either did or he didn't. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, remember that Satan is not a loose cannon in the universe. He has to go by God for anything that he does. He has to get permission to do that. You remember in Job, in the first and the second chapter, you read the first two or three verses of each of those two chapters in Job, and it says that the devil, Satan, approached the throne of God. Do you know that he still has access? He can still go before the throne of God today. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses uh, accuses us before the throne of God. But he goes before him and, and only what God allows him to do. Read that carefully in Job. Because if you don't get that, your understanding of who God is and his character is going to be pretty warped. He allowed Satan to do certain things. So God himself did not move David. He allowed Satan to tempt David because what does it tell us? And here's the reason why you can't throw out what you do know about God versus what you know, when you read something else, you have to hold on to what is true about God and understand that there's probably something else happening here, and certainly there is. Because James chapter 1, verse 13 tells us, and you might want to footnote that right next to your Bible in this verse here, in verse 1, because James tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God, and listen to this, he cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So it's not God. God allowed it. And so in a sense, you could say that God did it. But only in the sense that he allowed Satan to have his way for a moment. And God knows what he's doing. He oftentimes will allow things to happen in our life to, to school us, to bring us to an understanding of our own character, of who we are. But God knows the end picture. He knows the end result. And the end result is repentance. The end result is David being restored. And the devil doesn't know those things. He can't because he's not omniscient. The devil is not omniscient. The devil is neither omnipotent, and the devil is certainly not omnipresent. Those three characteristics belong to God alone. And so Satan only knows what God allows him to know. It's rather an unfair advantage that God has. And I love that he has the unfair advantage. He does. So, and what's interesting here is why did he call for a census to, to go and number the people of Israel. 
You know, in the law, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, the first five books of Moses, there were permitted times of taking a census. And it seems that, uh, that perhaps David, it was his motive here that the Lord had a problem with, not so much that he numbered the people. And I'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 30, because we're going to see just one example of God allowing the children of Israel to be numbered, but it was for his own purposes. It was for provision for the temple, or it was provision for knowing who was old enough to go into battle. Those kinds of numbers are important to know, and God directs that. God makes that happen. He tells the Levites and the priests to do that. But now David does something completely different, just out of the blue. It had nothing to do with any of those things, but it was rather something that was in David's heart, we believe. Otherwise, God wouldn't judge him for this. So the motive, his motive was wrong. And perhaps as David is getting older and his son is growing, he's thinking to himself, you know what, soon my son is going to go on the throne. And you know what, I'm just going to take a look at what we got. Take a look at how many tanks and how many missiles and how many F-18s and all these things. I want to find out. Let's number. Let's take a number. Let's take it, find out what, what all we got because I want to know because I want to give to my boy the best. I want to give to him everything. And you can see that that's a departure from David's trust in God. Rather, he was trusting in his own might, uh, potentially trusting in his own armaments, his own strength. But look at Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 11. It says, the Lord... Now, there, And this is a, a, a good reason why they would... Take a census, and here's just one of them. We're, not, we're just going to look at this one. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 11, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. And, and when you number them, that, they may, that there may be no plague among you when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. I know that means a lot to you. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord, and everyone, including those among you who are numbered from 20 years old and above, shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And why is this? And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the, of the tabernacle of meeting." that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So God had a specific reason to have the census taken. It was for the 20, year old, 20 years old and older that they were all to take a half a shekel. And that money was given to support the tabernacle to, and the service of the tabernacle to support the priests. And in fact, that's part of what you do here, by the way. When you put money into the, or, or checks or whatever into the agape box, that's really what you're doing. You're allowing this ministry to continue, the, the giving that we give and the, to pay the, 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 the mortgage and the, for the heat and the air conditioning for the comfortable seats and the food and everything that's going on here. That's, what we, that's part of what we do. To keep, and you're supporting me and others to continue to be. This is what we do continually. This is all we do. And how blessed I am. So thank you. <laughs> I truly am the most blessed man on the earth. You know, I love being here with you. I love being able to share the word of God. It's the greatest joy in my life. And as I'm growing in the Lord and as I get to share, there's no greater thing in the world. Somebody could come up to me and say, you know what? You know, 
you're going to be the next president of the United States. I say, no thanks. My job is right here. And this is what I'd rather do more than anything else. Unless, unless I can get in front of the White House and have Bible studies in the Oval Office and, and do all those things. But you know what? There's too much of a headache. The Lord has given me what I can handle. And even then I start to wonder. You know what I mean? Anyway, so thankful. But that, that's really what was going on here. So there were reasons why a census would be done. And... and um, David did not appear to be taking this census per the description in Exodus 30, but rather for another purpose. And so, unfortunately, it's common for men, once they're established, to look around and have pride in what they've done. Nebuchadnezzar did that, you remember? There was a time in his kingdom where he, he was walking around the, 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 the bulwarks on top of the, the walls, and he made a comment. He's like, and this is what I've done. And he started to... Think of uh, all that he has done, all that he has done, and, and how great his kingdom was. And little, little did he know that it was God who allowed him to have that preeminence. And even God gave him the vision of the, of, of the gold head, and he was that gold head. And you notice what Nebuchadnezzar did. And, you know, and then those silver, you know, these different alloys and different metals meant different, uh, um, different kingdoms that would come after his. And what did he do in response to that? He builds a gold image, all gold, in the plain of Shinar. In other words, it's not good enough that I'm just ahead and, there's, and these other kingdoms are coming after me. No, I want it all to be gold because it's all about me. Everybody exalt me. And so he puts a gold image and he's, saying, he's, he's telling something, isn't he? My kingdom, I want it to keep going, and it's all about me. And then God intervened in his life and caused him to go mad. He literally went mad for seven years. And was out in the fields. Lost his mind. But that's, as David is getting older now in his reign, he's starting to think about his posterity. He's thinking about Solomon. He's thinking about maybe he could do God a, a service by making sure that he's got a big army. And God doesn't need any of it. Believe me, God can, he doesn't need an army. Trust me, when we come back with Jesus at the end of the tribulation period and he comes back, I don't see anywhere in the scripture where it tells us that we're going to be doing anything. We're going to be coming back on white horses with him and he's going to be doing all the work. With a word of his mouth, he's going to, spike, he's going to smash his enemies into pieces. And they will be worthy of receiving that judgment because they've rejected the Son of God, the only means of salvation. So while there is nothing wrong with this, we must continue to give the God to God the glory and not touch what he deserves. And maybe this was the motive of David, and I believe it probably was pride. In fact, Jeremiah 17 verse 5 says this, Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, who hope, whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when he comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And God answers that question. I, the Lord, search the heart. 
I test the mind, even to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And so Satan was the one who tempted David to do this in spite of Joab's insistence that it shouldn't be done. Even his bloodthirsty, rebellious general, Joab, even he said, David, what are you doing? And Joab and David were bumping heads on this, and yet, nonetheless, David's word prevailed. But God wasn't the instigator. Satan was, and he always is. He's always the instigator, always trying to get us to trip. In verse 2 it says, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know the number. This means all of Israel. Underline Dan to Beersheba, because if you were to look at a map of Israel, Dan is in the very northern part, right on the border of Syria and Israel. And then down at the very southern border of Israel is Beersheba, down in the desert. And so when he goes from Dan to Beersheba, he's going from north to south. I want you to go from north to south and count all the people And again, the pride in David's heart was the motivator rather than a directive from the Lord. And apparently, it wasn't for a census for the purpose purpose, of obtaining finances for the tabernacle. So verse 3, Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Again, even Joab, who again wasn't a faithful man, recognized the wrongness of this. Nevertheless, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains. Notice, even his captains. You know, when you've got your commander of the army and his Men and your men all saying, you know, this is not good. You really need to think about what you're doing. Because very seldom did the men under David's command resist him. Because when David was walking in the spirit and doing the things that God wanted him to do, they were all on board. And, you know, I think that's a good lesson for us. You know, those who are around you, especially if you're in any position of leadership or maybe you're in a job, maybe you're the boss, and all of your employees are thinking, you know, this decision you made is really wrong. Have you considered it? No, we're going to do this. And then you, like a pig, you know, you force your, your, you make your demand happen, and then you find out that it's disastrous and you've lost touch with your base. You've lost touch with the people who are on the ground doing all the work. You better listen to them. A good manager, a good boss is going to listen to those people who are interfacing with the people. And sometimes you just have to swallow your pride and say, you know what, I think they know best. And I think you're right. I'm not going to do that. I think that's a wrong decision to make. And that requires a really special person, a person who is not you know, focused on themselves. But the word, David's word prevailed. And, uh, and then they crossed over, notice verse 5. They crossed over the Jordan and they camped in Aurora on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Now, the way to think about this is if you looked at a map and you saw the Dead Sea, which you know, uh, the Sea of Galilee is up here, then there's the Jordan River, and then it goes down and then into the Dead Sea, Right to the west of the Dead Sea, about 14 miles, about halfway through it, there's a city right on the um, Arnon River. 
That's right, I got my head to make sure I read that. <laughs> the Arnon River, right on the Arnon River, there is a city called Aurora, and that's where they started this census. And so now, on the east side of the Jordan, they start at this place, and they go right through the, the, the tribes on the east side. They go up north, and they go as far as to Dan, up in the very top, and then they circle around, and they come back down uh, as they come up from the east side. Then they cross over the Jordan, and they come back down above the Sea of Galilee, that is. And then they continue to come down all the way down to the south into Beersheba. So it's a pretty long trip. In fact, it took them, what, nine months and 20 days to do it? It says, Then they came to Gilead in the land of Tahim Hoshdai, and they came to Dan Juan, Dan Ja'an, I'm sorry, and around to Sidon. And so now they're going all the way up, all the way up to Dan. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre, which is on the coast there, and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then, so they went through all of that. And then they went south, to south of Judah, as far as Beersheba. And so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Notice how long it took to get those statistics it must have been a really interesting time. There must not have been any wars going on. Perhaps the land had been subdued somewhat. And so David just kind of, you know, the army's sitting around doing nothing. And so he gets this idea, you know, why don't we just number the people and that way I can know how big I am. <laughs> and then Joab gave the sum of the number of the, king, of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now, remember that these were estimates. Okay, When he says 800,000, it's probably not 800,000 right on the dot. But those are the men of Israel and Judah. We're going to find out in, uh, in 1 Chronicles 21 that some of these estimates are a little bit different. We'll look at that. But 800,000 valiant men of Israel, 500,000 valiant men from Judah who drew the sword. And moreover, Joab, even in this, he did not do this task faithfully. You know, he, David told him to do this, and, and, and Joab is so incensed by what the king is asking him to do that he, he kind of did it half-baked. He did like a half, he didn't do the full job. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 6, it says, But he, Joab, did not count Levi and Benjamin among them. For the king's word was abominable to Joab. So Joab, even though he does this, he doesn't even count the Levites. He doesn't count the Benjamites. And yet in 1 Chronicles 21, it gives us a different number. Now, as we look at this, we have to understand that there's some conjecture here about why the numbers are different. I don't know if it really matters to you. It really doesn't matter to me. But you'll notice when you get to 1 Chronicles 21 that it says 1,100,000 valiant men drew the sword in Israel. And this, may, this number may have been the estimate of all those men. And maybe later on the chronicler knew that Levi and Benjamin added together with those other 800,000 make up the you know, 1,100,000. We really don't know. And it really doesn't matter, to be honest with you. It's just something to be aware of. And then in, uh, it says 470,000 Valiant men came from Judah, and the chronicler either rounded up to 500,000, which is possible, or there were some other people that weren't included in that number. But again, it really doesn't matter. And again, don't let numbers, especially in First and Second Samuel, throw you, because guess what? No, regardless of the numbers, the doctrine of the things that we're reading doesn't change. Do you understand? 
You know, don't get hung up by numbers. That there were some books in the Bible where the original texts were, um, and Samuel is one of them, and Ezekiel is another one, where there, there was some differences. But they're not big enough to throw anything. They're not, they're not big enough to cause doctrinal changes. Do you understand? And so those are things to consider. But the original, script, the original manuscripts, the originals are flawless. I believe that. It's only when you take and you try to translate a very old document, especially in Hebrew, from what I understand, just a little speck over a, a figure can mean the difference between 500 or 5,000 or 50. And so you can understand uh, over time that can be a little daunting. But let's go on to verse 10 here in, uh, in our chapter 24. Notice what it says that David's heart condemned him after he numbered the people. And so David said in the, uh, to the Lord, no, notice that David did this of his own volition. So how long did it take him? Nine months and, ten, or and 20 days. Nine months and 20 days. Remember when he committed the sin with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah? It was about a year before the Lord finally busted him. The Lord sent the prophet to go and confront him. And then David cracked like an egg. Thank God. But notice that David now cracks like an egg before he gets busted. And to me, that's a, that's a really wonderful thing. When, God, when, you, when you finally come to your senses before God has to send somebody else to tell you something or to tell you himself, he gave David a lot of time to think about what he did. And so finally, David's heart does convict him. And so he not, because he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. And you know, conviction is a wonderful gift. It brings to mind what we've done wrong, and it gives us the opportunity to what? To confess and to repent. Do you know the difference between conviction and condemnation? Conviction brings us closer to God and causes us to confess and to repent, where condemnation pushes us away from God. And you always know who is at work depending on how you respond to that correction or you respond to that feeling of either conviction or condemnation. If you are finding yourself being convicted about something and it's causing you to get things right, then praise the Lord, that's the Spirit of God. But when you sense that you are feeling like, and the devil's whispering in your ears, oh, because you've done that, you're nothing now. You've always been nothing, and God knew that all along, and now everybody else knows that you're nothing, and you should just kill yourself. You should just kill yourself. God doesn't want you. The church doesn't even want you anymore. So you might as well just drop off the face there. In fact, just... Why don't you take that crack pipe that you put away and why don't you go downtown and buy some rocks? Why don't you go have yourself a good time and numb that pain that you're feeling inside? And see, the devil will always do that. He'll always condemn you and then it just brings you to destruction. It brings you away from God where God's conviction wants to bring you close to him. So you always know who's at work. And believe me, the devil is very cunning. He knows you and I very well. He's been studying us. But there's one who knows us much better, and there's one who is on our side. Right? I almost want to break off in that song. God is on our side. <laughs> right? He's on our side. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So you don't have to fear the devil. You just keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, 
I don't want to be focused on what he's doing all the time. You know, there's Christians that do that. It just drives me crazy when you're around some Christians and all they do is they're focused about the devil. Oh, did you hear? Man, the devil did this and the devil did that. And do you know he's setting me up? And man, I can just, you know, and they get this and they get all uptight. And you're like, why are you so focused on the devil? Why don't you just stop and get your eyes on Christ and live a blessed life? And your countenance will, instead of looking like a wilting flower, you're going to be like a daisy in the sun. What's the problem here? Stop focusing on the devil. Somebody needs to hear that. <laughs> Stop focusing and paying attention to what the devil's doing. Pay attention to what God wants you to do and forget about him. God's going to take care of him. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen? But it took about 10 months for David to finally come around. Now, verse 11, it says, When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, or David's prophet's, and, and notice that David remembered that old feeling that he had when he had sinned with Bathsheba and killed her husband. There's a gnawing feeling, and David was very familiar with that. You know, sometimes, you know, when these things happen to us and you start to feel that same feeling again, that's a great time to get on your knees and ask God to forgive you. <laughs> and hopefully you know what it is. And usually we do. Usually we know we're in rebellion and we're getting that same old sinking, tanking feeling in our hearts. And that's the time to stop, drop, and roll. As Dick Van Dyke, remember the old uh, commercial about if you catch on fire, stop, drop, and roll? Do you guys remember that? Or was that Smokey Bear? I don't remember what it was. It doesn't really matter. But the idea is that when you get that feeling, David got that feeling. He's like, oh, I've been here before. I've been here before. And I tell you what, I don't want to live through that again. Lord, I want to come clean with you. <laughs> And that God was waiting for David all along to do that. But how patient God is with us. Notice, nine months and 20 days, the patience and wonderful grace of God. Don't ever take God's grace for granted and, 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 and take advantage of it. We do that. We typically do that. But may as we get older in the Lord, maybe as we get older and more mature in Christ, let's, hopefully we'll all do that much, much less. We won't take it for granted don't take his grace for granted. Relish the grace and thank him for the grace and walk in his spirit and walk in that grace and thank him for it. Amen? So important to do. So Gad, uh, David's seer, uh, the Lord tells him, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. And I'm thinking to myself, oh boy. Something's going to happen to me, and now I've got a choice. I always hate that. It's like the price is right. Door number one or two or three, what's it going to be? But notice there's always a consequence for sin, always. Notice that the consequence wasn't even just upon David, but it was really upon all of Israel. This turmoil that this was for David to see the judgment of God being meted out on the people when it wasn't affecting him. Can you imagine the guilt of that? You know, there's nothing worse than something that you've done is causing the pain of others when you yourself are not being affected at all. And I think that's just crushed David because David as a shepherd, that just wasn't his heart. It wasn't his heart. We're going to see that it wasn't. And God allowed that. And I bet that just gnawed on him and just brought an end to him, which is always a good place for us to be, to bring us to an end of our selfishness, of our self-life, of our 
sin and rebellion. God wants to bring an end to it. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That's what David got for his sin. His error was to watch these people that he was king over. 70,000 men died in three days. Galatians 6 tells us, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for what, uh, whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. And it's true, isn't it? So in verse 13, So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in the land? Which actually should be three. You might want to put in your Bible, three years, it's not seven years, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's actually three years of famine. Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what, you, what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Now I said that there was three, three days. Or I'm sorry, three years of famine, I'm sorry. The Septuagint translation, which you know is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It reads literally three instead of seven. And also in First Chronicles, the parallel account to this account also reads three years of famine. Okay, And it fits what, what God is doing. He's using the word three. I'm giving you three choices, three you know, months of, of famine, uh, three months before you rise while, you, while the enemies pursue you, or three days plague. <laughs> And so the Lord gives him these three things. And David said, I am in a great distress. Please let us, notice, fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Listen, it is such a blessing to fall into the hand of God. Because God is the only one who really knows what is necessary to get you to turn. Mankind, we are cruel to one another. Mankind over the years and the wars and the awful things that man has done to man has been, is horrible. And there's no mercy. It's just bloodlust. But God is not so. He only needs to do as much as he needs to to get us to yield. And why is that? Is it just because he's mad because we're having fun? No. Are you really having fun when you're sinning? The, the pleasure is pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable for a moment. But then the bill comes. And consequences come from my sin that I can't pay. And they're very costly. Sometimes they cost your life. They cost you relationships. They cost, the price tag is too big. It's too big. But God knows exactly what he's doing. And I love David. He said, don't let me fall into the hands of man, but I'm going to fall on the mercies of God. And that was a good answer. And so the Lord sent a plague from Israel, from the morning until the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. They died. And again, notice, I love the mercy of God even in this. It was quick. It was surgical. It was over in a very short period of time. God is like that. I can't imagine the alternatives. There might have been while the enemies pursued them for three months, they could have endured a lot more loss of life. But God chose the thing that was least, I think. Notice in verse 16, So when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. Jehovah, whenever you see the, the Lord in all caps, L, capital L-O-R-D, 
that always means Jehovah, Yahweh, okay? And so when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord, God the Father, Yahweh, relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, and said, um, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord uh, was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. And, and this man, Arona, um, you'll find in First Chronicles chapter 15 a variant spelling, okay? Ornan, O-R-N-A-N, O-R-N-A-N. So in the Bible often you'll see a, a person's name spelled a little differently it's the same person, and this is why, uh, you know, uh, dictionaries, uh, commentators, um, strong concordance, those kinds of things can be a really good help to you because you can, re- you can understand that these are one and the same. And of course, in context, you know that, but it's just something to consider. So verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But notice David, even the the phrases that he uses shows his shepherd's heart. But these sheep, what have they done? And David is relating to his God's people as sheep, and he was the shepherd. That, that, that was the, the thing that, that, that God had made David, gave him that heart over his dad's sheep, gave him that responsibility, because one day David would be the shepherd over a great number of sheep, but people. And David comes back to that idiom, and he says, these sheep, they've, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Man, it would have been so much easier, Lord, if you just struck me with a plague of some kind and you know, brought me through it, but I had to suffer for a little while. I much would have preferred that than these people have done nothing, and yet it was because of me that this is happening. See, that's the heart of God. When somebody's willing to own it and, and, and say, Lord, what... Can't you just take, can't you just do something with me and let these people off? This is why we must take heed to what the Lord spoke to David in 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. What did God say to David in his last words? What were the, some of the last things that God said to David? At some point, God said, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. That's what God spoke to David. And notice, and Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Remember, before David, uh, before David conquered uh, Jerusalem, the, the name of that city was Jabus, and it was renamed Jerusalem. It was Jabus because the Jebusites lived there. And remember, it was David's nephew, Joab, who actually found a water shaft and actually climbed up. And the other men came and they, they were able to overcome the town with very little resistance. And David named it Zion. It's right to the southern part of the Temple Mount, as you see it today, where the Dome of the Rock and all that other stuff is. Right to the south corner of that, the southeast corner, is what we call the City of David or Zion. And they've, they've uncovered a lot of that. And if you go to Israel with us, you'll be walking along that stuff and seeing where David's palace was. And it's amazing place right there. And they've uncovered a lot of it and they got it all covered. It's really wonderful to see. But you've got to understand that when David... Um, uh, took over the Jebusites. Evidently, this Aruna, this man from who was a Jebusite, he owned some land there on the Temple Mount 
Because back at that time, it was just a big field. And it was just an outcropping of rock there at the top. And so you have this place up here on the top here. And now you've got David's city of Zion over here. And then all this was just grass. There was no temple mount or anything up there. And Aruna owned all of that land. And so David approaches him and God spoke to his angel and was standing there on that very place. And so Gad came to David and said to him, Go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And so David went according to the word of God, or the... Um, so David, uh, according to the, went up as the Lord commanded. Did I skip a verse? No, there it is, 19. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And, and, so, and this is this little part of land up there. Now Aruna, look, and can you imagine the, how this man might have been frightened? He sees the king coming with an entourage of men, and he's thinking to himself, what did I do wrong? But Aruna's heart, look at this man. I'm so impressed with this man. He saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And so Aruna went out and he bowed it down to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why is my lord the king come to his servant? And deep in his heart he's thinking, I hope it's good. <laughs> and David said, well, I've come to buy the threshing floor from you. A threshing floor was where they would thresh wheat. You couldn't do it at the very top of the mountain because as you threw the wheat, as you did this with the wheat and you threw it up, the chaff was supposed to blow away in the wind and then this, the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And so they would do it just on the other side of that where it wasn't so windy and there was just enough wind to blow away the chaff but, an, but not enough to cause the grain to be blown away. And so he owned all of that threshing floor, that whole hill. And so David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arona said to David, Let my lord the king take it and offer whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for burnt sacrifice, the threshing implements, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. You've got everything you need here, David. I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you the oxen, uh, all the threshing instruments, the wood, everything. I'm going to give you. You can take it all. And look at the worship of this guy. What an awesome location he had. <laughs> All these things Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. And then King David said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it for you. And in Chronicles it tells us the full price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Amazing. At the heart of worship is sacrifice, isn't it? So David brought the threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now, when you read 1 Chronicles, you're going to see that it says uh, 600 shekels of gold. It could be that David, at this time, bought the threshing floor and the oxen and the instruments for 50 shekels of silver for that specific area, but then bought the whole land around it, and that cost a lot more. And so that's what many believe that the difference is here. And, um, and notice that David knew what worship is. He knew what worship is. He was a worshiper. He would not accept it for free from Aruna. And remember that real worship costs us something. It costs us, doesn't it? Real worship, is, there's a cost assigned to it. 
You know, when I think of the, the woman, uh, Mary, who poured the ointment out on Jesus' feet, it was a, a jar of spikenard that was worth a, a, a one-year salary. Think of that. Think about what your salary is, and that's how much this costs. And she was so willing to pour it out on the feet of Jesus. That is worship. She could have sold it. And think of what real worship is. Real worship is a sacrifice of some sort. Even sometimes singing our songs, sometimes that can be a, an act of worship because many of you, if you're like me, when I, if you, you, know, you come in from work and you just don't feel like singing, but isn't, it, isn't God worthy of it? To sing regardless of how you feel. And so it, be, it does become a sacrifice of praise. Maybe you're having a really tough day. Maybe you've lost a loved one in your family. And God, you know, and you should still worship God. Isn't he still worthy? Regardless of whether all your family's alive or two of them were killed in an accident. Are you going to stop worshiping God because he took something away from you? It's certainly, I can understand the human element of that. But no matter what he does, he's worthy to receive all honor and praise. We just don't understand what it was all about and what it's for. Maybe in time we will. And certainly in glory, I'm sure he'll tell us. But David built there an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. You know, it's interesting. It's believed that this very spot, Aruna's threshing floor, was where Abraham offered Isaac it's recorded for us in Genesis 22. Read it. It was the mountains of Moriah. And we believe that that's the very spot because there's an outcropping of rock up there and they believe that that is right where Abraham offered Isaac. Genesis 22 corroborates that. It's also the spot that David had Solomon build the temple on that very spot. And it's also very near the area where Jesus would be crucified for the sin of the world. Think of all the time you know, that goes on. You know, way back in the time of Genesis, you know, Abraham offering Isaac, and now you have David building a temple or Solomon building a temple on that very same spot and the plague being stayed from, uh, from the people. And then, you know, fast forward now another thousand years, and now you got Jesus Christ dying on a cross just a little bit north of this place where this is happening, because Jesus was crucified just a little north of the Temple Mount where it is today. And so what about all this? You know, there, there's a lot of things we could learn from this. We must never get lax or lazy. You know, David, as he got older, he probably just got a little lax, started counting his money, started counting his goods, allowing pride to take hold. And we must never forget what real worship is. To really continue to learn what true worship is. You know, when you think of Jesus' life on the cross, it was the greatest act of worship. In fact, if Sarah, if you could come on up, and Dan, you know, we're going to take communion together tonight. And you think about that sacrifice. The greatest sacrifice. The sacrifice of sacrifices. I mean, who would die... Who, Almighty God, dying on the cross when he did nothing wrong. He never did it. He never did anything. He didn't deserve it. And yet the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of God do you serve?
Because <laughs> if it's a God that, you know, makes you feel good and, 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 and it's a God that doesn't require it and it's a God that doesn't, didn't die for you, then what about you? Are you going to get to heaven based on your own merit or has somebody already paid the price for you? I would rather have somebody pay the price for me and thank God it wasn't even up to me. While I was still a rotten scoundrel, Jesus paid the price. And so let's be thankful for that. And that's why we take these tokens, the bread and the cup, to remember what Jesus did for us. And so at the end of our, uh, while, our while we're singing and worshiping in this song, just come on up and grab the elements and bring it back to your chair and we'll take it together. Amen, Lord. We just thank you for uh, what these uh, tokens mean. Thank you that you're the bread of life and that you came and your body was broken for us. And Lord, we take this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name. And thank you for the cup, Lord, for the blood that was shed for our sin. And we take it with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name. Let's partake. Lord, we're mindful of what you spoke to the disciples on that night. You said that you would never, you wouldn't drink of the vine until you drink it anew in your kingdom. And Lord, so we do this in remembrance of you, and we do this to remember your death on the cross. The precious blood that was shed, the very blood of God. Lord, how we thank you for that. How we thank you for setting us free. And Lord, thank you for tonight, Lord. We pray that you get us all home safely tonight, Lord Jesus. As the temperatures drop, Lord, give us safety on the roads. And even our morning commutes tomorrow, Lord, keep us safe. And thank you again, Lord, for just this wonderful book of Samuel. And Lord, how we look forward to 1 Kings and, and just continuing to learn and to grow as we see the life of Solomon and so, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. It's a bittersweet moment for me, Lord. But on we go. So we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.